Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Diana Vreeland had an extraordinary impact on fashion during the middle of the last century. She was resilient, imaginative, and in an incredibly fickle industry, she produced groundbreaking work for over 40 years. Today, I'm going to be discussing her life with Amanda McKenzie Stewart, author of the book, Diana Vreeland, Empress of Fashion. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm um, a writer based in Oxford in uh, England. Um, I, my, for many years, I worked in the film business. I went to the National Film and Television School. And so I had many years working as part of the independent production film industry in the UK. And then about 10 years ago, um, a story that I thought might be, be uh, a film story turned into a biography of Consuelo Vanderbilt and her mother. And uh, after that, since then, I focused really almost entirely on biography. What drew you to Diana Vreeland as a subject? Well, um, really, it was a question of one thing leading to another. Uh, Diana Vreeland popped up unexpectedly in the, at the very end of my biography about Consuelo Vanderbilt, uh, Diana Vreeland put Consuelo Balfon, as she was then called, into an exhibition called American Women of Style uh, in 1976, uh, and or put her clothes. Because by that time Consuelo was 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 dead, but but put her clothes and some images of her into this exhibition called American Women of Style, and. Um, uh, instead of being a paragraph, you know, and uh, just me sort of kind of running through this quite quickly at the end of this biography of Consuelo, I got totally distracted by this great character, Diana Vreeland, about whom I actually knew very little at that point. And really, uh, that's how it began. You know, the, the, the subject for my second book was kind of born in front of my eyes as a result of writing the first one. <laughs> What sources were most helpful to you? Sorry, could you repeat that? Of course. What sources were most helpful to you? I'm sorry, I still don't. I just still didn't get that one. What sources were most helpful to oh, you? Sources. What yeah. sources were helpful? Well, the most of the sources were in, in New York. Um, the the uh, key source was the was the Diana Vreeland papers, which were in the New York Public Library in the manuscript room. So they were deposited there after her death by her grandchildren. That was they were a very important source. The uh, another crucial source were the magazines that she worked on in from through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, uh, so uh, the back numbers of uh, Harper's Bazaar were crucial. Back numbers of American Vogue were absolute, both absolutely essential sources. And um, then, of course, it was also a question of interviewing uh, many people who couldn't still remember her. Mm-hmm. So I had to talk to 
many people, it's a great pleasure tracking them down and talking to them. Um, so really, that's how the source is divided, papers, uh, magazines, and uh, and interviews. So I have to say, I had quite a lot of trouble persuading my friends and family that spending days on end flicking through back numbers of Harper's Bazaar and Vogue really added up to work. But <laughs> it was. <laughs> So coming to this book, I had really unlimited knowledge of Reland's early years, but I always assumed she was European and spent most of her life in France. This ties into the sort of, for lack of a better phrase, origin myths that arose around her childhood. So where did she come from? Well, she was born in Paris. There's, there's absolutely, that is absolutely true. Um, uh, she was the daughter, she was born British. Her father was British, so that made her British at that period. Um, she only took American citizenship much later. So she was born British uh, to a British father and an American mother. But uh, she didn't grow up in Paris, as she often claimed. The, the family moved back to New York from Europe uh, when she was just a few months old. And though they made many trips and in, to to Europe when she was younger, and her parents both thought of themselves, I think, to some, to some extent, as spiritually European, um, she had a New York upbringing. But the answer to your question about where did the myth come from? The myth came from her. I mean, she she just liked to rewrite her own childhood and say that she was essentially brought up in Paris, and that you know, in a world where you know Nijinsky came to the house and. Uh, the great demi mondaine of the Belle Epoque swished past her in the in the Bois du Boulogne and uh, and so on. Um, uh, but it wasn't really true. Uh, she it wasn't in fact it wasn't true at all. And um, I, I became very interested in why she chose to tell the story of her own childhood in this way because I think there were quite interesting reasons for it. Shall I go on and of say course. why? Yes. What were those reasons? <laughs> uh, well, I think I think she really did have a very unhappy childhood. Uh, what was definitely true was that she was uh, a rather plain child, born into a family of beauties. She had a very beautiful mother, who well was renowned for her beauty, uh, a very good-looking father, and a very very beautiful younger sister. Her younger sister looked like a mother, and little Deanna looked like her father. And this seemed to cause, in this particular family, which was, was really a slightly dysfunctional family, a great deal of pain. I mean, she felt from a very young age that her mother was ashamed of her because of the way she looked. And I have no doubt that she was a very difficult uh, and, and demanding child because she was always being compared to this very beautiful, very easy and intelligent younger sister. And Diana was the, was the difficult one and Alexandra, her younger sister, was the beautiful, t- intelligent, and I think very nice person. But, you know, it, life came easier to her and it didn't for little, little Diana. And the problem was compounded by the fact that they had a nanny, a very long-serving nanny, who very much echoed uh, mother's attitude to this daughter. And so she was coping all the time with two two adults in the house who really had a terrible down on her, I think. And she, I think, probably became very difficult as a result. Um, she was also, I think, a highly, highly imaginative 
child and she learned to take refuge quite early on in a, a sort of parallel fantasy world. But that also made her very difficult to educate. She liked to claim that she wasn't really ever educated, but they made the parents, in fact, made sterling educate, uh, efforts to educate her properly at Brearley School in New York. Um, but it didn't work. It, she really, it really didn't suit her. And when she was around 13, Brearley asked her to leave. And around that time, uh, I, I think she became very, very depressed. I suspect that adolescence didn't do her looks at that stage any favours. She had no sympathy with her mother's great new hobby, which was big game hunting. She absolutely hated it. Uh, she was she she was then really expelled essentially from Brearley. Um and later on when she was older she chose to just rewrite this in a much more dashing and interesting way. Um, uh, she 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 rewrote her childhood as much more as she, I think she would have liked it to have been rather than the way it was. You write that as a young person, she tried to find a great person on whom to model herself so that she too could be great, which I found fascinating because I think that sometimes that's why people read biography is to take kernels of wisdom from other people's lives and incorporate them in their own. Can you talk a bit about how she went about doing this and if she did find a great person on who to model herself? Yes, certainly. I, she, um, so as she went in, I mean, the, the evidence we have for the way her mind worked in her, in her mid, early to mid-teens is a diary that she kept when she was uh, 14, about 14, and the dates from 1918. Um, and she's clearly very, had, continuing to have a very unhappy time. Uh, she's left Brearley School. She's already happier because she's doing a lot of dancing classes uh, with, a, with a Russian dance teacher called Mr. Shalif in the afternoons. Um, but what we see her do in this diary is, is, is constantly switch into this parallel fantasy world where she searches around for a role model on, on which to base herself. Um, but in the end decides that no one that she meets or no one that she's reading about will really quite do and that the person on whom she's going to model herself is the best perfect version of herself, which she calls the girl. She, she, goes, she says something like, never have I found a girl or a woman to look up to. I shall be that girl. And you can see her working, working out in the diary how to become her own role model, if you like, uh, by, by creating this sort of perfect vision of how she could be. And this involves sort of setting about huge efforts of self-production in her early teens, in which she decided to attend to every aspect of herself. So this is the way she talked. She tells herself that she's deliberately going to increase her vocabulary. The way she, she walks, um, uh, the way she is with her friends, the way she behaves, and of course, the way she looks. She starts, you can see in the diary, that she's starting to think very hard about changing the way she looks. And in the diary, in this period, you can also see something else happening, which is that this effort of, of changing the, the way she presents herself to the world actually works. She, she starts to have friends for the first time in her life. People find her amusing. You, know, um, you, you can see that the, the great thing was not just that this was some sort of fantasy, but that when she actually put the fantasy into action and changed the way the world saw her, uh, 
she her life changed too, and that was very important, I think, for the point of view of her later career. Mm-hmm. So, how did she become involved in fashion? Her involvement in fashion came much later, uh, in when she was in her thirties, and it it came. Um, she, was, she became interested in fashion because very early. I mean, one can see that she was already turning herself into a very stylish young woman and was known for her her style, even as a debutante in in New York. So she was passionately interested in clothes because because they were such an important tool in this effort of of how you presented yourself to the world at, at that stage. Um, she she married Reed Reeland when she was an uh, incredibly handsome husband when she was very young. And they then spent six and a half years in Europe and quickly became um, members of international high society. They, 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 she was very amusing. He was incredibly handsome. And they were a charming couple. And they met all sorts of people like Cecil Beaton and uh, Elsie Mendel and the great socialite Mona Harrison-Williams. Um, and at that stage, when they were actually living in London... Diana Reeland started to, as she then became Mrs. Reeland, then uh, started to to go over to Paris to have her clothes fitted and, as it were, imitate and copy some of the great fashionable women with whom she was now associating and becoming friends. And they all did this. They all went to Paris regularly for fit, fittings with the, with the great Paris couture houses. And uh, Diana found a way of 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 doing this too, that she didn't have the money of uh, her very rich friends, but couture at those point at that point was not nearly as expensive as it later became, um, and she found it absolutely fascinating. I mean, you you had to submit in those days, as I'm sure you do now, to a, a great number of fittings and be available to go back repeatedly and stand for hours while. Somebody pinned and recut and um, all, you know, on you. That was often the way it was done. And um, she, she she particularly patronised the, the the house of Mambochet, um, but also uh, when she could afford it, uh, the great Coco Chanel. And so she really learnt. She was became fascinated by the technique of it as, as well. So she learnt a great deal about the technique of couture, of dressmaking, and fashion at that at that point in her life. Mm-hmm. So when the Freelands went back to New York in 1935 because of Reed Freeland's job, um, she was already casting around for a way to earn money because they, they, you know, she, she felt that they needed some extra. And at that point, she was talent-spotted by an extraordinary person called Carmel Snow, who was the fairly new editor of Harper's Bazaar and just intuited Diana's talent and offered her a job. She wasn't absolutely, Carmel Snow wasn't absolutely certain what to do with Deanna at that point. And in fact, the very first thing she got her to do was a column called Why Don't You, which was essentially a kind of list of stylish suggestions that covered much more than fashion. Um, but from 1939 onwards, uh, it was clear that what Deanna Freeland really, really, really knew about and had an extraordinary sense of was clothes. And mm. Extraordinary talent for, for for clothes, and from 1939 onwards, she became the fashion editor of Harper's Bazaar. 
Okay, we're going to come back to Harper's Bazaar in just a second, but I want to go back to um, the European period because in the book you mentioned that it's kind of hard to pin down some of the details of what actually happened. So as a biographer, how do you deal with the discrepancies and how your subject said things happened and how it seems that they actually did? Uh, the Josephine Baker story, for instance. Well, uh, the Josephine Baker story, I one has to hazard a guess. I mean, I, I thought it would be a very boring book if I just uh, spent my whole time going through what uh, Deanna Vreeland said and what probably happened <laughs> sometimes the gap between the, the two is rather rather fascinating uh, the josephine baker story involved uh going to the cinema seeing a film called the l'atlantide which involved leopards um putting her hand down on something in the cinema while she was watching leopards on the screen and finding that her hand rested on josephine uh, oh, sorry, not, it wasn't a leopard, it was a cheetah. Uh, the film involved cheetahs. Uh, she, the, the way she told the story was that she put her hand down on something only to discover that her hand was resting on, the, on Josephine Baker's cheetah. <laughs> and in her story, she turned around to Josephine Baker and said, oh, I see you've brought your cheetah to see the cheetahs. And um, that's what Josephine, and Josephine Baker has said to her, said, yes, that's exactly what I... Uh, what I've done, and then Deanna De Vreeland finishes the story by watching Josephine Baker go out into the street with a Peter with the tutor, and just uh, jumping into a great big Rolls Royce and going off. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in that particular instance, which was a great story, uh, the I, I, I looked I looked it all up. Yes, the film Josephine Baker was in Paris. The same as all was supposed to have taken place in Paris. It was, that was all perfectly plausible. I expect that what happened is that she did see Josephine Baker with her cheetah, but I don't think that it's very likely that the cheetah was in the cinema and was very good um, right through the film because the cheetah was a very badly, but famously badly behaved cheetah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another, there's another point in Diana Rudin's life. She said something like, the last details of any story are never satisfactory. So quite often what you find with her stories is it's the last details, the final details that she's tweaked up to make a good story and uh, have an impact. Um, but that it all has some basis in something that really probably did happen. <laughs> so what was Harper's Bazaar like during her time there and what were her contracts? How did she change the magazine? Well, Harper's Bazaar was... Uh, Already, it was a very extraordinary magazine, even by the time she joined it. Carmel Snow was a remarkable editor with a great instinct for talent, and she'd already appointed um, a, a, an art director called Alexa Grodovich, who was changing the look of this magazine. And in fact, he's said to be the father of graphic design, and you know, his influence can still be, be felt in the way magazines and advertising are. Are, are designed and, and and laid out to this to this day. So there's this extraordinary talent there was Alexei Brodovich, and into this came Diana Vreeland with her particular it, it responsibility essentially for for fashion, um, and um, the so the magazine was already going through a, pro, a process of, of a real transformation by the time she got there. Her Influence can really be seen partly in the uh, first of all in the language of the fashion writing, which which really was extraordinary. Um, it, it began to change from 
descriptions of of uh, you know of, of, of fabrics and just little captions that ran underneath underneath the photographs to to much more poetic, interesting descriptions of 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 the clothes. So that was that was one thing, but. A lot of the, of the importance of her job was was behind the scenes in, in the sense that uh, Carmel, what Carmel Snow wanted her to do was bring European pizzazz to the American fashion industry so that the clothes that were being produced by the American fashion houses and the American manufacturers were of a sufficiently high standard to be photographed in this new cutting-edge um, and very brilliant magazine. So actually, what from the outset, uh, Carmel Snow saw Deanna Vreeland's job as a fashion editor to catalyse improvements in American style. And that was sort of built in to the role from the outset. So quite a lot of her work was involved going, going down to 7th Avenue, seeing the manufacturers, persuading them to do things in a much more interesting way, taking ideas to them, uh, you know, for hats and snoods and accessories and all, and there was a way clothes were cut and and you know, a whole a whole new ideas. Part of part of them that she she brought over from brought over from Europe, um, and try to get American fashion up to a whole new level. And that, of course, started, and she and to you know to a very considerable extent, she succeeded. And that began to reflect it, it, itself in the way that the magazine, in the fashion pages of the magazine. One of the really interesting passages to me was how, um, during World War II, how she shifted the need, the magazine, to meet the needs of women of the time. Can you talk a bit about how its edit, how its focus changed during the war years? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is an, actually a very fascinating period yeah, in absolutely. American fashion history. This, um, I mean, all. All the men that were involved, a lot of went off to join the the war effort in one way or another, leaving the production of American fashion magazines and indeed American fashion to a small group of highly talented women like Claire McArdle and some of you know some other women in that uh, circle. Um, the 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 focus changed from you know to a much more sort of make do and mend. Take what you, take what you find around you, whether it's your big brother's overcoat or moccasins and belts, and you know put the look together in your own way, but keep your morale up and the morale up of those around you um, by by doing it with style, you know. And so it became much more sort of in, a much more individualised, empathic approach to to fashion in the war in the war years. Uh, much less sort of you know we 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 tell you how to dress and you do what we say. It's much more we help you put yourself together um, uh, with the help of these brilliant young American designers who are, are designing for the lives you are these wartime lives you are leading. Mm-hmm. So it was a very very different approach to fashion in the to high fashion in the late 1930s. Um, a big, big change, which actually then did rather switch back again to command and control fashion when the war ended. So you know, it, it went through, and it went through this. Uh, the whole cycle sort of rather turned, came round again in, in the 1950s. 
Earlier, you mentioned the girl as the person who um, Vreeland aspired to be. But was this also how she imagined her readers? Yes, I think I think it was exactly it, 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 absolutely. She, I think they shouldn't. She was very rarely explicit about this. Uh, at least not right up until the 1960s when when she became editor-in-chief of Vogue. Um, this was how she saw... I think she she was... It's quite, quite difficult to explain, but she, she was always, right through her life, fundamentally, I think, aligned with the woman reading the magazine, the reader, not, not the fashion industry. And she always saw the reader as... Uh, as, as the author, as, as having this, this potential to be the kind of heroine of her own life, as the, the person who could make um, choices in a world of creative possibilities. And this was the best way of interesting the reader in fashion, to see her, to, to see her in this way, allow her, allow her to see herself in this way, um, capable of making these choices for herself and doing small, stylish things that were enormously life-enhancing, but they were absolutely within her, within her reach, if only she just allowed her imagination a little bit of free reign. Um, so, yes, I think this concept of the girl was sort of fundamental to that. Any, any reader could have her own sort of vision of the girl, any, and it was, it was open to all readers. So how did she wind up at Vogue, and um, what was her time like while she was there? Well, her reasons for going from Harper's Bazaar after a very long stint to Vogue were fairly... Well, I think they were. I think she had. There was been a change of editor. Carmel Snow um, was forced to retire. She was replaced by her niece, who uh, who took the magazine in a much more. Well, I think Diana Vreeland and other people felt she took it in a much more prosaic direction. I'm not sure it was. That, they were being entirely fair, but but it was a different relationship. Um, she she stayed on for four four years, but the real point of contention was was money. I mean that the Hearst executives simply refused to give her to pay her properly and give her a proper pay rise. So when the uh, top brass of Condé Nast made her an offer, uh, which involved much more money and trips to Europe to go to the collections and all sorts of things, she she jumped ship. She didn't become editor-in-chief of Vogue immediately. She had the best part of a year as an associate editor working alongside um, the, the editor-in-chief. And it wasn't absolutely clear that she would take over. But in the end, she she did. They needed somebody to re-energize Vogue and she she was definitely the person at that time to do it. Vogue itself was actually a it had a much bigger circulation than Harper's Bazaar always, but it was a much more conservative magazine. It you know it was addressed. It knew its business. It had been in been around since nineteen nine. It had foreign editions. It was delivering delivering advertisers to a really pretty conservative uh, North American readership. And it wasn't really at all innovative when Diana Freeland took over. It's also important to understand that she took over as editor-in-chief in 1963, and really the 60s, as we think of them, didn't get going, and they certainly didn't reach upper-class America to till a little bit later, till about sort of 1965, 1966. But what was really interesting for a biographer looking at 
Diana's Vogue of the 1960s, is the extent to which she, given the given this freedom of being editor in chief, no longer having to report upwards to anyone, anyone, she started to explore issues that went right right back to her childhood, or certainly to her teenage years. So we see her, uh, first of all, quite quickly in the early 1960s, starting to introduce the idea that that ugly women could be beauties. Or women with funny faces like Barbara Streisand could be could be beauties too. So that's you know one thing that a you know, real preoccupation from her early years coming coming through. And we also see on the very first editorial in 1963, essentially introduced this person, the girl. Uh, she she starts her first editorial in 1963 with a photograph, a very young um, American. Uh, Social, a socialite. Though I think she went on to do other other things called Lily Cushing. And there's an editorial about how the most important thing is is to to listen to your own voice, to to be yourself, to allow yourself to dream, and that way you can be the become the heroine of your your own life. So that's very much the Diana Vreeland we sort of see from the from those from those diary entries too, and. I think it was that sort of access to her deep past that made it very easy for her, even though she was an, in, by then in her 60s, to, to embrace what she called, it was her expression, the youth quake. Uh, all these things, this, you know, this rise that was just happening in front of everybody's eyes as, of, the, of the young as an independent style force with the lead being taken by you know, a group of stylish young people in, from all walks of life in, in in London. And she just thought this was great. One of the things one sees in her diary when she was much younger is a, is a tremendous, tremendous frustration at how long she would have to wait before she could go out and be herself and and start life. And she just loved the idea that these creatures of the youth quake no longer had to sit around waiting for life to start. And she could just understood it. She understood the, 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 the release and the liberation that went with the tumbling of these barriers. And she really kept, kept talking about it uh, in the pages of Vogue and, and sort of making it acceptable, an acceptable idea to a fairly conservative readership. And as, it, as the 60s progressed, one can see this idea of, you know, you become that, you are the heroine of your own life, you are the creative force in a world of possibilities, you know, it's your, you, your decision, you pick, you choose, you do what you want with this idea, you go off and run with it, coming up again and again in, in the pages of Vogue. And it kind of reached, um, it reached a sort of peak in about 1968, when she actually sent uh, the model Verushka um, and the the, the um, designer Giorgio de Sant'Angelo out into the painted desert with bolts of cloth and just sort of encouraged them to make the clothes up on the spot. And so that was really kind of taking it to, you know, in a very sort of famous series of images of Verushka wrapped up in a, as a parcel with her with her head and a kind of huge um, huge headdress of, of fur and, and jersey. So that was kind of taking that idea to the furthest extreme in the same summer that Balenciaga finally shut his atelier saying there was no one left to dress. Um, so she, she really, really 
uh, created an extraordinary magazine at that period, running with these ideas, allowing the photographers, encouraging the photographers to 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 go off and create these extraordinary sort of personal fantasies with the with with these models at the center of them. How did Vreeland's Vogue respond to the anti-fashion feminism of the time? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, uh, feminism had been on the 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 move. I mean, Betty Friedan had published The Feminine Mystique in 1963. By 1970, uh, which, the, the, really, the, 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 I mean, the 60s obviously a very violent um uh, a turbulent period in all kinds of uh, kinds of ways, but anyway, there was a, you know, in 1970 there was a, a sort of sharp reaction on all kinds of fronts, including, um, you know, a, a very well articulated argument by feminism that, you know, this that women should not go on just simply identify, allowing themselves to be identified by how they presented themselves. You know, there were all sorts of other options open to women and a life where you spent your, your whole time sort of dressing up and, and uh, in, in these costumes um, you know, wasn't the only option and, and that there was something actually rather fundamentally very wrong with it. Well, this, at, at this point, uh, Diana Vreeland lost touch with, with, uh, with, what, with the mood of the time, really, for the first time in her her career, she really she really couldn't get to grips with this at all. I mean, there's a famous story where where a feminist said to her, this is obviously a highly abbreviated version of what happened, but a feminist said to her, but you, Mrs. Breland, we do not wish to be, I, I, I do not wish to be any man's plaything. And uh, uh, D.V. looked at her and said, well, in that case, my dear, you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think what she didn't understand was that these the the the, the objections the fem- feminist objections were were getting some traction with 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 elite women who were readers of Vogue maybe not the that not maybe not the mothers but certainly younger women who were reading Vogue who'd been to college, who'd had exposure to, uh, to, to much more radical ideas, but were also beginning to embark on careers as doctors and lawyers and so on, and they wanted clothes for different, for different sorts of life. Um, you know, you really couldn't go out to work as a lawyer or a doctor tricked out as a jersey and all on parcel, like... <laughs> <laughs> mood um which 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 gained the upper hand for a while of course we now know that you all sorts of ways of of we're used to a much more eclectic sort of world now where you, you could follow your own track in any of these directions but anyway this feminism got the definitely got a hold of the of, of the anti-fashion argument and um around 1970 this very you know, extraordinary magazine uh, lost touch with its readership, and uh, as the readers disappeared, the advertisers revolted, and one thing led to another. And uh, Condé Nast decided it simply couldn't go on, and they sacked her. I mean, they kicked her upstairs, and there was a, a formula was arrived at, but it, to all intents and purposes, she was sacked. Mm-hmm. 
Veland is real. This part is what's really fascinating to me because she had an extraordinary second act at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Can you discuss the circumstances of how she got this position and what she was able to do whilst there? Well, absolutely. She she had a well after she was sacked. She had a very very unhappy period, a sort of interregnum, which went on for about eighteen months. Uh, well, she cast around for something to do. I mean, she'd worked since she you know since nineteen thirty three. She found the lack of structure, the lack you know everything terribly difficult. She tried a bit of this, she tried a bit of consulting. She did work for you know this that and the next thing. And uh, I mean, she had a bit. She had this sort of kind of notional position in, in Vogue, so um, as well and. Um, and they were actually called out very generous to her. Um, the, the suggestion that she should become a special consultant for the Costume Institute at the Met was floated during this period, but she, she, she didn't respond terribly favourably. She said she had nothing, she knew nothing about museums, she, didn't, she really wasn't interested in the past, you know, it was what was happening now that uh, really, really interested in her. She'd only ever been into museums as a as a tourist, and you know, so they they made, they kept making the argument. Then she got ill, and she was in hospital for several weeks, and all sorts of people came to visit her, and um, I think several friends who were connected with the both the Costume Institute and and knew her very well talked her into giving it a go. I think understanding in a way that she didn't understand what she could bring to this role um uh, and that somehow she really ought to give it should try and make it work so she decided to and um immediately or very quickly she began to she didn't really understand what she was taking on i mean all the correspondence you know, she she was she really had to jump in and she worked terribly terribly hard um but she also began to see quite quickly that she though she wasn't a scholar she could bring all sorts of of experience to this world of presenting costume exhibitions to the general public that no scholar I could bring. So, and, and there were great challenges and that allowed her to a completely different sort of canvas. So, for, for you know, in essence, one of the things that happened was that she was working in three dimensions for the first time. So she, 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 she introduced the idea of playing, you know, music during the exhibitions on a tape. She, she appealed to the visitor's sense of smell. She had the, the gallery sprayed with perfume three, three times a day, and she also had the clothes lit like a fashion editor. So they were, you know, the, the lighting was far more subtle. There were beautiful coloured backgrounds creating atmosphere. She found little touches to accessorise the the exhibitions that kind of opened up a historical idea. Um, she really locked horns with um, some of the more scholarly academics in the museum in the process, because what she was really interested in still came, came back to this idea of what was in the mind of the, the woman who was wearing, or the man or, or the girl who was wearing the clothes. Who, why did they make these choices? Why did this idea catch on? What sort of inner, what sort of inner, what was in their minds? What were they imagining? So this, this idea of a kind of of a woman's inner world actually informed the the exhibitions too, and they, you know, beautifully lit with wonderful music and smelling divine. You know, it was it was absolutely revolutionary in the first um, the, the first four or five exhibitions, and the crowds just poured in. <laughs> What is your favorite story about Diana Vreeland? 
Mm, my favourite story. Oh, I've got so many. <laughs> uh, my favourite story about Deanna Vreeland. Well, I, I don't know. Out of all the kind of enormous number of stories about Deanna Vreeland, I really got a favourite. But I guess what surprised me about Deanna Vreeland was how, how, in, in, in a curious way, how uplifting her story was because she. She really believes that if you if you dream something into it to existence and insisted on making it happen, it would happen, and it 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 did for her, you know. So she actually believed, to put it in its most sort of banal, that dreams can come true, and because and as a biographer, you know, I had to accept that in her case, she's it, they certainly did, you know. <laughs> that's what I. That's what surprised me. That's in a sense what I I liked best about working on the book. It was it was very um, it was very cheering. <laughs> what do you see as her legacy? Sorry, could you repeat that one? That was muffled. Uh, what do you see as her legacy? What do I see as her legacy? Well, I think, first of all, she definitely did change the way costume exhibitions are done. I don't think there's any argument about that. I mean, they, they had their flaws, they had their critics, uh, but it, it, there she was definitely a game changer. Uh, when it came to fashion, I think what she definitely did do was extend the vocabulary of fashion by insisting on the authority of the imagination you know this idea that you know the imaginative world has a huge role to play in the the wearing and the designing of clothes is 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 an idea that's really come from her um and um and so i think she she definitely extended the the vocabulary of of fashion so that's an important legacy I think more generally, it's always difficult to tell whether somebody's always reporting or create, you know, someone, particularly a journalist, is, or the world of journalism is reporting on what they see or actually helping to make the, the cultural weather. But I think to some extent, Deanna Vreeland was very important in the 1960s, introducing this idea that you could be, you the reader, could be the, 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 you know, the, this creative force at the centre of your life. It was you. You didn't have to copy other people. There wasn't, you, you know, you shouldn't be too intimidated by a set appropriate way of dressing or doing things. You know, you should use your imagination and, you know, you're an individual. There's this great process of, you know, individualization going on around you. Um, you know, and it, it, it was a very, it was, it was, it was for the good. It was, it was a positive, it was a positive thing. So I think, I think she had a wider cultural influence there too, which is very important. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Deanna Vreeland and Brisa Fashion. Any idea who you'll be writing about next? No, not at the moment. I'm having um, a little breather. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about Deanna Vreeland quite a lot to, to people. And I think there was one person uh, lurking in Deanna Vreeland's story that whose life I want to... Uh, investigate further to see as if it's as interesting as I think it is. Uh, but I can't say who that is at the moment. It's, 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 she's in there. She's in the book. Um, but um, at the moment, it's a secret. I need to, I need to find out more. Ah, now everyone can read the book and try to figure out who it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 
I've been talking today with Amanda McKenzie Stewart about Diana Vreeland and Brissa Fashion. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>